Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, when my wife graduated from Elon, um, I won't say which year, because um, <laughs> you can do math in your head. No, when she graduated from Elon, you know, like commencements, commencement ceremonies always have a speaker, right? They always bring in some celebrity or a politician, or like when my brother graduated from NC State, uh, he, uh, the speaker was Mr. Rogers. So, if you can imagine Carter Finley Stadium singing, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, <laughs> It leaves an indelible mark on you. But when my wife graduated from Elon, uh, they had a speaker come in, and it was a prince. I won't say what land he was from, or uh, whatever, but he was a prince, and he commenced to give sort of the platitudinal uh, things you hear in commencement speeches. You know, good things, but you know, very much cliche. Things like, go for your dreams, don't give up, shackle your dreams to your heart, set a goal and achieve it, don't be a human being, be a human doing, you know, that kind of stuff. I remember sitting there thinking, you're a prince. You never had to do any of that. (laughs) Your butler had a butler, more than likely. You know, when you go to hear those kind of speeches, it's, it's good, it's good. There's some very good commencement speeches, but they're always sort of about follow your passions. They're always about be true to yourself, right? Like follow your heart, whatever that even means. Essentially, it's a vision of life that's communicated that begins with yourself and it ends with self. But people that grow in your profession, I would say, They don't excel by asking themselves the question, what do I want from life? Now, that's a very common question. If you poll high school seniors or college seniors, that might be the number one question they ask themselves when they pick a career. What what will help me? Like, what do I want from life? I would say that's really just a selfish question. Successful people, truly successful people, and also with the kingdom of God, successful people, ask themselves a different question. What is life asking of me? And how, and and will I do it? How can I match my talents with one of the world's deepest needs? So it's sort of like the Lenten focus on water, where we have some medical professionals here in the church that have gone to those clinics. They have that talent um, with their professional lives, but they're 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 leveraging it for the kingdom, right? And they're combining those two things to meet a need of the world. Frederick, Frederick Beekner said, your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. And I would say, whatever your, holy, whatever your, your burden is, the thing that, that you, a holy burden, I would say, that, that is your calling, maybe. The thing you can't shake. Like, when I was a youth minister for so long, people would look at me and go, man, I could never do what you're doing. Like, that's something my worst nightmare, a middle school boys small group. It sounds like a train I cannot get off of, you know? But I would go, you know what, though? I have missionary friends of mine, like in Belgium, and I can never be, I'm a terrible missionary. Like, I just can't do it. I've tried. I'm a great domestic missionary, but internationally, I just, it's, 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 not, it's not in my giftedness, I guess. I mean, but we all have burdens, holy burdens, that things you just, you know you have to do. Like some of you are Stephen ministers, and that's just how God called you, or you're a small group leader, or you, you work with children, or on and on and on. Whatever that burden is for you, that's probably what God's calling you to do. Now, but the same goes with our faith. When we truly step out in faith, you're not saying to God, what do I want from God out of this transaction? 
That's really the wrong question. What you really should be asking is, what is God asking of me, right? And will I do it? Will I do it? Because it's like a mustard seed moment, like just that little bit of step, on, uh, step forward on your faith. It's a mystery to it, but that God through that, it's like a channel in which he moves. And over and over again, you see it. It's a principle that happens. But it's scary. It's hard. It's almost like the first couple times you do that, and you take a step of faith and trust God in something, it's like jumping off the curb of a street, like a, just a little blip, like a little, uh. But it's scary, right? You're like, I don't know, if I break my ankle or something. You know, but then as you do it and you get used to it, eventually you're bungee jumping for God and you don't even know it, you know? It's like it just gets more natural. Well, this is what happened to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He would later become Abraham, but at this point he's Abram. And God tells Abram to step out in faith and God would bless the world through him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and, I, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and those and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's saying to Abram, step out in faith. Go to a place you literally have never been before. Leave the house you grew up in and all those memories. Leave your family, your friends, and go to a place that you don't even know where it is. And I will take you there and show you the land you are to inherit. Because very much in this worldview, in this time, land was very much a part of the blessing as well and that inheritance of the land. But when we talk about faith, Faith is not this sort of misty, sentimental, um, overly necessarily emotional thing. It can be, but really, it's really trusting an unknown future to a known God, like, like Abram's doing here. And it's through the, our faith that we are made righteous, the Bible says, and through which God will move. It's like creating space for God to do the impossible, well, impossible to us. Like Hebrews 11, chapter 1, says that faith is the reality or the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Other translations do say the reality of things unseen. I know some people struggle with trusting a God you can't see, trusting a God maybe you've never seen. But I would say that in reality, faith is a very good evidence for God. Because if you exercise faith, it means you're being led. Either that or you're, or you're delusional, but I don't think you're delusional. I'm not delusional. But if you're exercising faith, it means you're being led. Sort of like how when you're physically hungry, it points to your need for food, right? It shows that you need food. Your, your body's telling you something. It's the same way with your soul. When you exercise faith in God and trust in God, it's, it's showing the reality, the presence of God in your life. It's like a cause and effect thing. Like, I remember one time I was at a conference in college where it was Campus Crusade for Christ and they had a, a big Christmas conference in Charlotte. Um, and I'd never been to something like that before with like peer group, like 20 year old, 21 year olds. And it was this ballroom full of like, you know, 2,000 young adults. And they're just worshiping their hearts out, right? They're standing on chairs, they're raising their hands in the air. 
It wasn't just emotionalism, like it was real spirit-led stuff. And I remember looking around thinking, wow, either, either this is very much real and God is present here and now in this place, or we're all completely crazy. It's either one or the other. And clearly, it's God at work in our midst. It's, it's the faith you exercise, it's showing that God is at work in your life. And so when Abram steps out in faith, he goes, he goes, through, he goes to its sight unseen. Hebrews 11, which talks a lot about Abraham and his faith and how we're justified by our faith, says, but by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, not knowing where he was going. And if you read Romans chapter 4, I encourage you just to write that down. Almost all of Romans 4 is Paul talking and writing about Abraham. But I, this little section here, verse 20 of Romans 4, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit, Abraham's benefit, it was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So when you hear those words of we are made right with God by our faith, essentially you're justified by God. You're justified in the sight of God by trusting him. That might be confusing for people. Like, just this past week, my, well, I say we were teaching my children, my wife was teaching my children at home uh, about, there's you know, this the homeschool curriculum we use, there's a bit of, there's Bible in it, and Romans chapter five says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And some adults, we really wrestle with that. It's like, what does that mean? Like, how do I do that? And and how, do I, how, how am I made right with God simply by trusting God? But it's, it's really through the mouths of babes that we can get a lot of wisdom, you know? And my daughter, when we asked her, what is faith? Now, her middle name is Faith, actually. She said, what is faith? And uh, she said, it means you know. It means you know. I thought, wow, good for you. You should go to seminary, Caraway. That's great. It means you know. And then my, my son ch- chimed in. He said, yeah, faith is knowing. It's believing. It, you know, John Wesley had a, a, an analogy for how you're justified by faith. And he called it the house of salvation. I've used this before. But it always bears repeating that the threshold to the door into the home, into a relationship with God, fellowship with God, is, is how we're justified by faith. And it's simply be by stepping through that door frame of your own volition, of your own agency, that then, then you, by doing so, you're saying to God, Lord, I, I receive your righteousness of Christ on my behalf. So when God sees you at that moment, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He doesn't see your failures. He sees the righteousness of Jesus on you. It's called an imputed righteousness. Now, you, you think, I don't deserve that. You're right, you don't. I don't either. It's grace, right? And so simply by your action of saying, Lord, I trust you. I give you my life. I'm stepping through this door frame. By doing that, you are saying, in the sight of God, you are justified. 
you think that sounds pretty simple. It is. It's so simple even a child could understand it. Now, there's other parts of the house of salvation that we can get into later. There's sanctification, where it's you're living in the house and you're growing in faith and you're, you're doing good works and you're loving the world around you. But in terms of being justified, that you're given the righteousness of Jesus on no merit of your own, therefore you are justified in the sight of God. Then in verse two, uh, God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. Notice he doesn't say to Abram, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make everyone love you, and you're going to be a king. No, he's not for your ego. No, he says that through you will be a great nation. It can be really scary, right, to set out on a journey, and you don't know where you're going. I read about a youth pastor one time who took his kids on a mission trip, which even the youth pastor didn't know. He said no plan, like no itinerary. They just got into a van, and they just started driving. Now, for the parents in the room, that would make you a little bit nervous, wouldn't it? It's also, it can come across as kind of lazy on the youth pastor's part. But he wasn't. He was saying, we're going to step out in faith, and the Lord is going to lead us and tell us where to go. And he's going to guide us. And through these occurrences of the Spirit-led, they got to you know, work in homeless shelters and meet people on the street. And, but it's, it's, it's unsettling to step out in faith because we have to let go of control. I mean, don't forget, Abram at this point is nearly 100 years old. His wife, Sarai, she's not Sarah yet, she's barren. She's like 80 or 90 years old. How in the world is God going to bring a nation through this couple? It literally is physically impossible. Well, if you fast forward to Genesis 15, it's a few chapters later, but it's really 10 years later. Now Abram is now Abraham. He's officially 100 years old. Um, and then and only then does, does God do what he promised to do. So God promises to Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to send you to the land. And the, the world's going to be blessed through your faith. Well, then 10 years go by. Do you think in those moments, Abraham's thinking, man, God, where are you? You told me you're going to do it. And it hasn't happened yet. But isn't it just like God to wait to, to work the miraculous until all of human possibilities are exhausted. Isn't it just like him? He gives, he, he, the savior of the world is born through a virgin in a backwater town that no one's ever heard of, almost no one noticed it even happened. It's typical of God to wait until he and he alone can bring the result and do what we cannot, which is work miracles. And our God works miracles every single day. Genesis 15, 5, he takes Abraham outside and he says, look toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to count them, <laughs> which you're not. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. You know, and so... I have to believe that Genesis 15 is talking about people like us, right? Without Abraham, there's no line of the Messiah, right? He's not talking about a Jewish-only situation. He's talking about the whole world, a nation of people being redeemed. 
You know, as believers, we're essentially part of those stars. I mean, we are adopted into God's family, right? By the grace of Jesus on our behalf. That we are adopted into his family. That we can forget our inheritance. We can forget our identity. And where we came from and what we've been bought and paid for by God. We need that perspective in our lives, don't we? That's many reasons why we come to church. So we can get that perspective on What's reality really about? And what does God have for my life? And what has he done on my behalf? That we are adopted into God's family. Romans eight fifteen. for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you, believers, received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, very intimate name for God, or Father, Abba, Father. Tim Keller has a great illustration about this. He says, imagine if you're a billionaire. Let's just sit and do that for a minute. I think that's why the lottery does so well, doesn't it? Just imagine. Imagine if you're a billionaire and you have three $10 bills in your wallet and you go get a cab or an Uber and you hand the driver one of the $10 bills to pay the $8 fare. Then later in the day, you look in and you find you only have one $10 bill left. And you think, oh dear, I must have uh, dropped it somewhere or I gave the guy too much money. So what are you going to do? Are you going to get all upset? Are you going to call 911? Are you going to demand they search the city for your 10 bucks? No. You're a billionaire. Yes, you, you literally print money probably in your house illegally. You lost 10 bucks, big deal. You're too rich to be concerned. You know, this week, probably most weeks, something didn't go the way you wanted it to. Somebody criticized you. Maybe something you invested in in your company turned out to be less valuable. An employee did not listen to what you were saying. Something happened the way you didn't want it to go. So, but what are you going to do if you're a Christian? Will this setback disrupt your contentment with life? Will you shake your fist at God? Will you wrestle and toss and turn all night? If you're upset about all of those things, maybe it's a lack of self-control, and it could be, but really fundamentally, you've lost touch with your identity. You've forgotten the promise. You've forgotten the promise of God for your life and what he's done on your behalf, that you've been adopted into his family. Essentially, as a Christian... You're a spiritual billionaire, and you're wringing your hands over 10 bucks. You know, we all need perspective like that. We all need to be reminded that God's ways aren't our ways. And thank God they're not. I don't want my ways to be like my ways. I don't want God's ways to be like my ways. I want God's ways to be God's ways. God's ways. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways, says, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sometimes we can be intimidated by stepping out in faith. But when that happens, it means that maybe we're forgetting the promise. We're forgetting who our God is. What he's done for you. What he'll do again for you. Again and again. As we continue to trust God, it is very much like a mustard seed thing where you have just a little bit of faith. Just show him just a little bit. And through that, he will do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. Be reminded again of what God said to Abraham. 
your descendants shall be as the stars. Likewise, God's vision for our lives is far greater than we can imagine. We can, like Abraham and Sarah, we can trust and have faith that through what seems impossible, God will do incredible miracles. And that trust returns us to God's table. So again, back to the beginning, what, what is God, not, a, not what do I want from God, but what is God asking of you? What's God asking of me? He's asking us to come to his table. He's asking us to come to receive him again, to remember and know his real presence. And really what he's asking of you is just to give, you, give him your life. Again and again, lay it out in front of him. There's nothing about you that he doesn't already know. He's, already, he's already always been at work. He's always been with you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's the ultimate good in every possible way. I'm going to say a prayer, and Pastor Ken's going to come up and lead us in the great Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to come to your table, we thank you, God, for the presence of your spirit. And let us know of your real presence here and now. As we approach your table, search us and know us, God. Root out anything within us that's unrighteous, that's displeasing to you. Let's confess it to you and find freedom in the forgiveness of sin. God, we all have burdens we come in here with. Thank you, God, we can lay those down at your feet and find new life again at your table.